we find in the Gospel of Mark. This, this last section, um, it's helpful for us to actually give you a handout. I'll make reference to that in just a minute. Uh, something for you to look at, something for you to read after the sermon, something for you to read when the sermon gets boring, something for you to uh, take notes on the backside, uh, something for you to take with you as you would leave today. Our scripture lesson is Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. I'll be reading this passage from the English Standard Version translation. So if you have your Bibles open, if you have your phones dialed into the ESV, uh, it's good to see all of you who have your electronic devices. It's wonderful today. I don't know if you're following the text or if you're texting, <laughs> but I'll assume it's uh, the more edifying that you're doing during this time of uh, considering the Word of God. Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, and they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Let's pray. Father, grant us uh, the Holy Spirit in such a manner that we can teach and hear and properly interpret and obey the words you've given to us, words of everlasting life. And we would ask, Father, that um, as we would leave here today, we would have a renewed sense of who we are and why we are in order to be fruitful in the work of the kingdom. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you notice in almost uh, all of your modern translations of the Bible, which would be the ESV, the uh, New International Version, and the New American Standard Version, these last 12 verses, verses 9 through 20, are bracketed. And sometimes you have a footnote with some explaining materials down at the bottom. The uh, King James and the New King James uh, does not do so. 
Now, that's why you have the handout. You have the handout to explain what is the history of the textual uh, manuscripts that we have in the original Greek concerning uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, What we need to understand, and this is quite a challenge to New Testament scholars, because out of these thousands of ancient Greek manuscripts which we possess, uh, not all of them have this ending. In fact, there are four different endings for the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Four different endings that we find in all of these ancient manuscripts. And so the question has been to scholars for the last several hundred years, what is the authentic ending to the Gospel of Mark? Since as we look at the most ancient manuscripts, as we look at the breadth of manuscripts, as we look at what the early New Testament church fathers were quoting, what is the original, authentic ending of the Gospel of Mark? That's why you have this handout. Uh, You should read this. You should understand why these scholars are perplexed. Now, my perspective, which is the way I'm going to present this to you this morning, I think how we should look at this passage and how this section of the Gospel of Mark, this ending of Mark, brings the Gospel of Mark to its conclusion, how we should look at this is that we can actually preach this passage with great confidence. And the reason why is this. The various things which are mentioned from verses 9 through 20 as responses to the resurrection of Christ from the dead are events and happenings which are recorded and grounded in other places in the Word of God such that we actually find nothing here in this passage that we do not find verified for us in the rest of the New Testament. Maybe we can put it this way. You would not be upset with me if I stood up here and said, let's recite the Apostles' Creed. Now I'm going to go through Scripture and show you how every one of the doctrines in the Apostles' Creed comes right out of the Scriptures. You would say, yeah, that's a nice sermon series using the Apostles' Creed as a kind of an outline and then going back to the Word of God and showing where all of these things that are taught are taught in the Word of God. Well, in the same way, if we were on the one side saying, this is really not the ending of the Gospel of Mark, nevertheless, I would say, is there anything here you couldn't preach? (laughs) And the answer would be, well, actually, no. And then for those who say, we think that this really is the Word of God, and I'm going to say, well, then I'm going to preach those things that we not only find in this passage, but all of these things are supported elsewhere in other parts of the Gospels in the New Testament. In a final analysis, the ending of the Gospel of Mark is of no real issue for us who believe in the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture because there's nothing contained in it that we would find out of accord with the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. It is, in fact, a nice summary of what the New Testament presents to us uh, with respect to the kinds of things that were the proper responses of the church after the resurrection. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. Uh, What do we read in these 12 verses that are lessons for us in terms of what actually transpired in the early church following the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? 
And the lessons that we actually learned here, first of all, concern the nature of unbelief. Surprising unbelief. On the day of resurrection, surprising unbelief in the minds and hearts of the eleven. We also see the mission that Jesus gave to his church as his very last words to the church, which highlights the significance of those words and therefore that mission. And then finally, uh, what we find in these verses, the last couple of verses, is really a testimony to the faithfulness of both the Lord Jesus Christ and the early apostolic church to what Jesus had given the church to do. So, three things. Unbelief, which will tell us something about belief. The mission of the church, which will tell us something about your mission, my mission. And then finally, faithfulness. Faithfulness as we find it in the Lord Jesus to his purposes and his plans and promises, as well as faithfulness to the apostles, which is really an important example for all of us. So to begin with, verses 9 through 14 <clears throat> gives us uh, a really the, the surprising ev- uh, happenings of unbelief in the hearts and minds of the 11 disciples. The nature of unbelief shows up in their unbelieving response to testimony and witnesses to the account of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, brought to them first of all Sunday morning and then later Sunday afternoon and evening. The first witness is that of Mary Magdalene, uh, verses 9 through 11. Jesus appears first to her. She's the very first person to whom Jesus appears on the morning of the resurrection. Now, that in itself, when we understand the background of Mary Magdalene, out of whom seven demons were cast. That in itself has a tremendous message of grace because she who was most strongly possessed of the devil is the one to whom the Lord Jesus appears first on the day of resurrection. She who did not flee from the crucifixion and the cross like the disciples did, she who, out of knowing Christ, the deliverance from the demonic, is there to watch the crucifixion of her Lord and Savior, she who sees him die in that brutal way is of the first to be there on the morning of the resurrection to do honor to the body of Christ. She is the first person to whom Jesus appears. There's a tremendous story and message of grace there. I don't have time for us to even look at it. But she comes and she testifies that morning to the 11 disciples. And you notice in the text, they would not believe her. And that would not has an element of willfulness in it that should not go unnoticed. And then the second report, as we see written to us in verses 12 and 13, is how Jesus appeared to two others. Uh, This is given to us in its fullness in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35, in that passage, where you have two who are walking on the road to Emmaus, which is about seven miles out of Jerusalem. And Jesus appears to them, but they don't recognize him. And he begins to ask them why they're downcast and sorrowful and all of this. And he 
walks along with them and he then explains to them that all of these things that have transpired with respect to Jesus of Nazareth, this is all of what the scriptures have foretold concerning the Messiah of God and what was going to happen with him. And they sit down to break bread, as you read the story. And in the breaking of the bread, as Jesus prays, their eyes are opened, their understanding is open, and Jesus disappears. So they rush back to Jerusalem to tell the eleven that they have seen the Lord. Now, when we read the stories briefly mentioned here, and then read them in their fullness in John and Luke, uh, we, we recognize, we have to recognize this, that the unbelief of the disciples toward these stories is, in fact, a great disservice, first of all, to Mary Magdalene, and then also a great disservice to these other two men. The eleven would not believe Mary, <clears throat> and then they did not believe these two. Now, in terms of evidence, and in terms of having the appearance of truth, the reports of both Mary and these two men are fully trustworthy. You've all heard people uh, describe something they've seen in rather vague terms. In fact, as a Christian pastor for the over the past 40-some years, I can tell you that uh, I've heard amazing stories of amazing miracles that people have said took place. And so I've said to them, tell me, what was this miracle? Did you see it? Well, no, a friend of a friend of mine said that in his church, there was this that took place and this that happened. Now, I have asked, and many of my friends have asked over the last 40 years, uh, tell me directly, do you have bona fide information where somebody's arm grew back? <laughs> He was an amputee. Did his arm grow back? Did you actually see this? Do you have Now, so you and I know what it is to have vague reports of tremendous things happening. And so then you become a little bit skeptical because you can't really get down to hard facts. That's not the case here. Mary Magdalene can be quite specific. In fact, we have her story in John's Gospel, exactly what took place. She says, I didn't recognize him at first. I thought he was the gardener. And then he spoke to me, and I realized who he was, and I said, Rabboni, which means my rabbi, my Lord. It's, it's a, a term of both endearment and respect. John's Gospel tells us exactly all the details that took place. That is not a vague, a friend of a friend of a friend said such and such and such and such. And likewise, with respect to the two men who met Jesus on the road to Emmaus. My point is, is that when you put these stories together, two independent accounts, you have very reliable, very trustworthy information. And the unbelief of the disciples is not because the evidence was weak or faulty. That's what's critical. The unbelief of the disciples did not reside in some kind of, well, we've examined what you've said and it just doesn't make sense. Or we've examined what you've said and it has too many holes in it. Or we've examined what you've said and it appears to be very inconsistent. The resistance does not lie in any kind of problem with the nature of the evidence that Mary and these two gentlemen presented. So... We have to then ask ourselves, what was at the root of their unbelief? 
And in verse 14, the very rebuke that Jesus gives, uh, that's what actually tells us of the nature of the disciples' unbelief. Now, I want you to notice something. If you don't have sufficient evidence for something, you can't be blamed for not believing it. In fact, you might be blamed for believing it because you, you believed it as a kind of unfounded leap of faith. If you don't have evidence for something, you probably shouldn't believe it. On the other hand, if you have sufficient evidence for something and you don't believe it, the question is, why wouldn't you believe it? That's what we're dealing with here. And Jesus rebukes these disciples because they had the right reasons for believing that Jesus had risen from the dead, but they did not believe it. A rebuke is a moral issue. He isn't rebuking them because they can't get a math problem right, an intellectual issue. He's rebuking them because they would not believe the evidence that was morally as well as intellectually compelling. That's what we see going on here. The fact that Jesus rebukes them for not believing that the evidence was sufficient, the evidence even persuasive, the fact that they had no excuse for not believing points to what Jesus then says in this passage, a hardness of the heart. He rebukes them for not believing and because of the hardness of their hearts. Now that tells us something about unbelief. It tells us something about their unbelief. It tells us something about unbelief in general. The human heart is hard in those things which pertain to God because of the sin in the human heart towards God. Or put it this way. Whenever the heart is morally compromised toward God, it will not believe, or at least believe much, in the things of God. Or to put it this way, when, when there is sin in someone's heart, it is hard for that person to really trust and believe in the things of God. Now, that's just stating something that you already knew. You know that fellowship with God and following God and obedience to God and loving God and serving God are all possible when you have been liberated from sin. But you know very clearly in your own life that if there's an issue of sinfulness, something you're holding on to, it's like the psalmist said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. You know that when you are in a state of disobedience toward God, that your ability to trust God, your ability to follow God, your ability to believe His promises toward you are all deeply compromised. The root of unbelief, especially in the disciples who were believers in Jesus, is traceable to the fact that right then, on the day of resurrection, their lives were morally compromised toward Christ. How so, you say? 
Well, how not so? Thursday evening, early, 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 good Friday morning, they had all said to Jesus, no matter what happens to you, we will stand by you. No matter what others will do, we will not deny you. No matter what, even if they take you and kill you, we are willing to die with you. And what's the true story? Peter denies Jesus three times. When when Jesus is apprehended by the temple police, they all flee. Except for John, none of them are there when Jesus is crucified. And on the day of resurrection, they are all weeping and mourning, but also in a state of great fear. And the story comes that Jesus is alive from Mary, and they would not believe it. And later in the day, from the two on the road to Emmaus, and they do not believe it. They don't believe it until Jesus comes, stands in their midst, and rebukes them for their unbelief. And it's only then that they believe. This is a general truth. This is always at the heart of unbelief. The presence of sin and moral compromise toward the things of God. And I, and I have to think about this with respect to my life. I have to think about this with respect to your life. The very thing that Jesus came to do to address our sin is the very thing we need to believe more and more and more. Because our hearts will so easily move away from surrender to Christ. Our hearts will move so easily according to our own predilections. And when our hearts move in directions away from all that Jesus has done for us, we find ourselves increasingly lost in some form of unbelief, which leads to not trusting Him and not relying upon Him and not walking with Him. Now, that's why the last part of this message the last two verses of this passage deal with faithfulness, which is going to be an important help to what happens with us in terms of our unbelief. Now, I want you to recognize also in verse 14 
only Christ can address unbelief. Now listen very carefully. Only Jesus can deal with unbelief. Jesus shows up both by his appearance and by his words. He rebukes their unbelief. And in his words of rebuke, they're clearly changed. Their hearts change. They change to disbelieving, to believing. They go from mourning to joy. They go from disobedience, Christ denying, to Christ following, Christ respecting, Christ exalting. You and I cannot change the unbelief of anyone's heart. We do not have that power. We've not been given that power. I know there's those out there in the evangelical world who think it's their job to win people to Jesus, to convert people to Jesus, to, to, to encourage people to... Sure, we should encourage people to believe, but you and I can't ever move someone across that line from unbelief to belief. I mean, there have been people who thought we could do that and then thought if you didn't do it, their eternal damnation of that soul rested upon you. That's a terrible burden to bear. We can't change human hearts. But does that mean we have nothing to do with the salvation of other human beings? Does that mean we have nothing we can do in the face of unbelief and others? No. No. We have been instructed in the Scriptures that we can pray for Christ to do what we can never do. And we have been told that we can be the actual voice the one who presents the message and the words which then God uses to change and rebuke an unbelieving heart and makes it soft and pliable for the sake of the gospel. We have so much to do. But praise God, we can't change a human heart. It's a miraculous thing that Jesus himself will do. It's our job to pray. It's our job to make the message known. Now, we continue in what Jesus said to the disciples. The clock is working against me. Um, oh, well, I'll just move on. I'm going to go on to the second point. <laughs> Verses 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. It, the, the second great response is to is Jesus giving the great commission. And it links into the first because we, we were talking about the nature of unbelief. We're talking about only Jesus can change things. But nevertheless, then he then gives to his disciples the great commission. Now, what we read here is, is this particular statement that he's to go into all the world and to proclaim the gospel to all creation. Verse 15. We have other places where the Great Commission is stated. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Uh, 
Go therefore, and making disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age, or Acts 1, uh, verse 8. But you will be my witnesses where the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall begin in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world. So the Great Commission given to the church is given in lots of different places, and, and, and it's again and again, it's always the same. It's the mission of the church to proclaim the gospel of salvation to all the world. Now, let me make a point. There's a distinction that needs to be made between the purpose of the church and the mission of the church. The purpose of the church is given in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 31. Uh, Therefore, whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Everything about us, our lives as, as the church and as believers, is to be unto the glory of God. Or Ephesians chapter 1, where three different times in that passage, uh, the Apostle Paul says that our salvation is to the praise of the glory of God. Our salvation is to the praise of the glory of His grace. So our personal salvation, and then salvation corporately of the church, everything about us, our purpose is to bring God all the glory. But in, 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 within that great purpose of God for us to live into his glory, Jesus gave a specific mission, an earthly mission, with respect to the church. That's what's called the Great Commission. The Great Commission where the central concern is this, to proclaim the gospel to all creation. To proclaim the gospel everywhere throughout the world. Now, a couple of things. These are the last words of Jesus. When you study all the gospel accounts in the book of Acts, the culminating words of Christ after the resurrection, before his ascension, all focus on the Great Commission. That's another way of saying that it's not that you save the best for last, but clearly in the life of Jesus, what is of final and ultimate importance, comprehend the last things that Jesus says to his disciples before he's ascended. These are the marching orders for the church. So that's the first thing to understand. This is the purpose of the church that never goes away. The, the, the earthly mission of the church, the earthly purpose of the church, is to make the gospel known. Secondly, that great commission embraces everyone. It wasn't just for the apostles. It's not just for clergy. Everyone who knows Jesus is called to make Jesus known. It's critical. It's important. The Great Commission for the whole church is the Great Commission for every true Christian within the church.
there are those who've said it this strongly, and I think I agree with them. Obedience to the Great Commission is one of the marks of a Christian. Now, I want you to think about that. People of a deep understanding of the things of God. So many of them have said, it's one of the marks of whether you're truly a Christian. If you are obedient to the Great Commission. Now, I'm not dogmatic about that. But I would say something like this. If you've truly tasted Jesus, if you truly know the living God in a personal way, if you truly know that your sins have been forgiven, if you truly know that this has given you everlasting life, if you truly know that those who don't believe this, as Jesus says in this passage, will stand condemned, if you really believe this, wouldn't it be part of who you are that you would want to make this known to others who don't know Jesus? How could this not be a mark of your life in Christ that you want others to know Jesus, the way of salvation, the way to escape perdition, the way to escape the wrath of God to come? At the very least, I'm asking you. You know people who don't know Jesus? Are you praying for any of them? What would it be like to stop and reflect and think, there are five people within my circle of all the hundreds of people I know. I know that if they died right now, they would go to hell. And I have never prayed for them to know Jesus. If we're truly concerned about the kingdom of God, we need to be thinking about those things. We need to be saying to God, work with me. Lord, enable me to have a praying heart, at the very least to have a praying heart for those that I know do not know Jesus. I have to jump to my last point because I can't preach forever. after page after page of things to say. Okay, the very last point, verses 19 and 20, <laughs> is about the testimony of the faithfulness of Jesus. Now, look down at verses 19 and 20. Uh, we, we read there that um, Jesus ascends into heaven. And then it goes on to say, in verse 20, the disciples go around doing these miraculous signs because the Lord is at work with them. Now, first, the ascension. 
the ascension is one of the most important events after the resurrection that we find mentioned throughout the New Testament. Um, on the day of Pentecost, uh, Peter preaches the ascension of Jesus. He says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you are seeing and hearing. And of course, that was the speaking of the tongues and the proclamation of the, of the gospel that was happening on the day of Pentecost. So Peter is saying that Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand. He has fulfilled his plans. He has fulfilled his promises to give his Holy Spirit to the church, to empower the church, to be the witnesses concerning the gospel. So, there's the faithfulness of Jesus. Jesus is faithful at the Father's right hand, overseeing the dispensation of the Holy Spirit to the church. Now, verse 20, from that position at the Father's right hand, we are told that the, the, the apostles went out and they did these miraculous signs which authenticated the message of the gospel because it was the Lord at work with them. Verse 20, And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying them. So here's the important teaching. The apostles were faithful to their mission while the Lord Jesus was faithful to work with them and to confirm their message. The key thing is faithfulness. We started with unbelief. We talked about mission. Now faithfulness. First, the faithfulness of Jesus to all of his plans, to all of his promises, to all of his purposes with us as the church. And then the faithfulness of his followers to the mission that the Lord has given them. But here is the key teaching that's so absolutely essential. It is the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus to his purposes and plans with us. That is the guarantee and the foundation and the undergirding of our faithfulness to the mission which he has given us. It's no different than what Paul has said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And that good work in you involves your part in the Great Commission. It is Jesus who will faithfully work in us to will and to do his good pleasure. Another way of appreciating this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, But we have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of everlasting life in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power that is what's manifested through our lives in the sharing of the gospel, what's manifested in our lives in terms of 
the good and service we would do to others. Just so that the all-surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. His faithfulness, the foundation of our faithfulness. His power enabling us to do our work. So, the ending of Mark. The authentic responses to the resurrection of Jesus. We understand what unbelief is. Moral compromise toward the things of God is at the heart of unbelief, not intellectual obstacles. Jesus alone can address unbelief and change it to belief. We trust him for that. Jesus has given a mission to the church. It's to each Christian, to all Christians, to all the church. At the very least, we can pray for those who don't know Jesus. At the very least, we can pray that Jesus would change hearts. And then the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus. The fact that Jesus is faithful to all his purposes and to all his ways is the basis and foundation of your own life as a Christian. It is all comprehended in what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we, believers, you and I, are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, and to faith, salvation, and union in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God prepared in advance for us to walk in them. That's who we are. That's why we are. To the glory of God. Let's pray. Almighty Father, enable us then to live for the sake of the gospel of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In all things, to give you glory. And while we have our earthly breath, to breathe, to live, to pray, the Great Commission, to be faithful witnesses to all that you've done in Christ and through Christ for us, for this world. And then enable us at the end of the day to say, we are but jars of clay. The all-surpassing power is of you and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.